Well, hello everybody. Hi. Welcome on this beautiful Monday. Lovely day out. Beautiful. Maybe out. somebody's got their iPad out, sitting under a tree. Can I do that? The... Sure, go ahead, yeah. honey. <laughs> go running out. <laughs> you know, I was just looking up. You know when daylight savings time starts? When? Two weeks. Wow. Starts the weekend of 11th to 12th. So it's a week from this coming weekend. Because okay. this coming weekend is Sunday the 5th. So it's I the next weekend. I hate losing that hour. But... Oh, that's I love right. it. It's you know, it's just it is an hour. We do miss it, but oh my gosh, it's so nice that when it's days lighter, um, especially for people who don't see so great at night driving, kind of gives you that extra hour in addition to it getting lighter. But now know? I'll be back to getting up in the super dark dark that's on true. Sunday morning. That's true. Right? That's not fun. <laughs> <laughs> just it's just a lot harder to get out of bed when it's super dark. You know, it just seems like something's wrong there, you know? Yeah. We're I, supposed I to get up when the rooster crows, and the rooster crows at sunrise. We could do what Alexa does for us on Friday afternoon at 5. We don't know how this even started, but we have an Alexa, and she's like part of the family. And every Friday afternoon <laughs> at 5 o'clock, she starts making all kinds of celebration noises and telling us it's 5 o'clock on Friday! Yay! We could do that Sunday morning at 7 a.m. We could. And See, that might help you. So is Alexa part of the family? She is part of the is family. Is she in the will? Not yet, but <laughs> I'm changing it, so. <laughs> just, don't, just don't tell the other kids. <laughs> so, She's anyway. always there for me, you know? She is. Really, pretty She's much. She's true blue. <laughs> Unless the electricity goes out and you can't find her when you need her, right? Yes. Oh, hello. My sister. Well, do you want to go somewhere and talk to her? I'll, I'll just talk to sure. the folks here for a minute. Well, see you Fatty in a minute. Fatty sister, she always needs to answer because it's often something drastic. Okay, so everybody, let's see. I'm going to well, get. The... I've already lost my sister. So okay. Back. <laughs> You're coming back. Sorry about okay. that. <laughs> All right, Patty's back now. This is the fun of live, whatever this is. <laughs> live, yeah, whatever. Yeah, live streaming. Live streaming. Okay. So we're so glad you all are there. And um, I know Scott has prepared a good class, and I'm just going to let you okay. have some prayer. Let's open up. Gracious Lord, Lord, we are grateful to be here on this beautiful Monday, um, uh, finishing up the month of February and move looking forward to springtime and the flowers blooming and the days and evenings getting a bit warmer and we just uh, pray as we gather together here for the next somewhat more than an hour to study your word that you will open it up for us we're we're, we're in the book of Hosea and like the other prophetic books it, it's not it's not always easy but it is always challenging it is always challenging we just pray that you would help us to to hear you in this. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All righty. Okay, very good. Side. All righty. So we are in the book of Hosea. Remember, written about, oh, a little more than 700 years before Jesus. Written in the northern kingdom before it was taken apart by the Assyrians and um, it balances God's wrath and God's love. And we saw that in the opening chapters with the story of Hosea and Gomer. And now we're into the long sections of what are called oracles. Those are, those are messages. 
and some of them are pretty straightforward. Some of them are very difficult. Not I'm not talking about difficult for you and me. My, it's probably all difficult for us, but difficult for you know professional scholars and translators who just have a heck of a time trying to understand um, kind of what it's about and what it's referring to and how it should be translated in places. So I guess I say all that. So don't feel badly if you if if you're reading through something like these oracles, the messages in Hosea or elsewhere in these books, prophetic books or books of the prophets, and you feel kind of adrift. And I'm you're saying it, so I'm not sure what I'm supposed to make of this. Well, a lot of people aren't sure. And so we come together and we, we try to do it ourselves um, with the help of a lot of others um, that I've been reading in the last week or so. So what I want to do is we got we got to chapter 4, maybe verse 14, I think maybe last week, and I was just kind of blowing through some things and maybe wasn't um, going quite as slowly as I should. So here's what I want to do. Find Hosea 4 and go to verse 11. You'll see that verse 11 in Hosea 4 begins with a couple of words like to prostitution. And in the NIV, there's a semicolon then. And then the, then the next phrase. Which reminds us, as I try to bring up sometimes, that the chapters and verses are only about 800 years old. It was They were done by a couple of Englishmen who went through, and they got a lot of it done pretty well. Sometimes they're kind of funky. This one's kind of funky that you would have a verse break there. But they did their best. Okay? And, but really, there's kind of a section break. There's a section break right in the middle of verse 11 because old wine and new wine begins a new section. It's like a little, it's like a proverb, right? Old wine and new wine take away their understanding, take away the understanding of the people. As in literally, they're drinking too much because this section's going to explore the ways in which people end up worshiping the pagan gods like Baal and Asherah. And I got a couple of photographs I'm going to share with you here in a bit. So so you wonder, well, why? I mean, the Israelites, they, um, they're supposed to stay true to Yahweh, and yet they, they ch chase after these pagan gods and goddesses, and there are reasons why they do so. Maybe one of the foremost is that they are not to make any graven images of God because God is spirit. Um, God can't be captured in a hunk of stone or a piece of wood, no matter how skilled the artist. But we like tangible things, right? We like tangible things. And so in these pagan religions, they're filled with all kinds of figurines and statues and the rest of it. And that's attractive to people. In addition, the foreign, these pagan religions had a big emphasis on fertility cults, sexuality, sex, parties, drinking, the whole thing. Um, and I guess I kind of understand that because... They live in a world in which life is very tenuous. 
half of the children, this is true even in Jesus' day, half of the babies born don't make it past the age of five. Um, people die for all sorts of reasons. Disease, accident, warfare, just lots and lots of reasons. Um, and so, and, and the economy is such that they have that they need people, right? Because these are agricultural economies. And they have some animals, yes, but they need people. They need lots of people. That's probably the driving force behind, in the ancient world, slavery was practiced around the globe because slavery was a way to import into your economy labor. And so it's not surprising then that there's a big emphasis on fertility, on children, and having lots of babies and everything that goes with all that. So... Um, we're going to see some more ways that the Baals and the Asherahs, these pagan gods and goddesses, are attractive. So look at look at the last part of verse 11. And if y'all have anything, help me out here and type it in. And I'll try to see it because Patty is needing to talk to her sister right now. So, old wine and new wine. The good stuff and the not so good stuff. That's what that is. Take away their understanding, the understanding of the people. And of course, they were chastised earlier in chapter 4 because they don't know God. We are to work, we are to love God with our hearts, but also our minds, with all of our hearts and minds and soul and strength, every bit of ourselves. And the mind that we have been given by God is a precious, precious thing, and we are to use our intellect. Um, we have intellects unlike any other creatures, um, earthly creatures, that God has made. And that's all a gift. We can put it to good use, our intellects, or we can put our intellects to bad use, right? Um, and But if we just spend all of our time you know, deep in the sauce, so to say, so to speak, then we won't understand much. So he says, old wine and new wine, take away their understanding. My people, God says, consult a wooden idol. <laughs> and a diviner's rod speaks to them. You see, they could have these little tools, the little statuettes and the diviner's rod. I always picture the, um, the what do they call them? Oh, the watering gizmos you know the yeah anyway somebody on here will probably type it in for me the diviner's rod speaks to them there's just an immediacy to these tangible things you see that they can't really get in the same way with Yahweh because it isn't that Yahweh isn't real but they can't they can't hold Yahweh in her hand or stand Yahweh up in the corner or anything else like that and Yahweh doesn't even promise to be the magic answerer of all our questions. That's one of the problems when people come to the Bible. They, they tend, I've met too many Christians who will see, who kind of see the Bible as like a magic answer book. Like everything you would ever want to know about how to have a good marriage, how to have a good marriage, you're going to find the answer in the Bible. Everything you ever wanted to know about how to be a good parent, you could. 
you, you'll find in the Bible. You can find a lot, but you can't find it all. It's that That's not the purpose of the Bible. The purpose of the Bible isn't to make us better parents. The purpose of the Bible is not to... Um, it, it, the purpose of the Bible is to help us to know who God is and who we are and what God has done, is doing, and will do to rescue us from ourselves. That's it. The parenting and all that other stuff, being a good husband, all that, that that's all great. It goes along with it, but it isn't, it isn't why we have the book. This library of writings, I should even say. So, verse 12, my people consult a wooden idol, a diviner's rod speaks to them. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. Now, that prostitution is probably speaking in a metaphorical sense, like we've talked about um, here in the book of Hosea, speaking of the people's readiness to go chasing after Baal and the Shira and the rest. And I guess I'll use my pictures now. Okay, so let's see. Here is a figurine, one of many. They don't all look exactly the same. Um, and I would not rely on some modern-day drawing of Baal because those get all messed up. This is a figurine of the god Baal found near Megiddo, which is up... Um, well, it's 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 Mount Megiddo, Har Megiddon, Har Megiddo, um, up in northern Israel, and it dates back to about the second millennium BC. And when I saw this, I thought to myself, "Wow, looks a little bit like a Barbie to me." Oh no, it doesn't. <laughs> Patty's back. <laughs> yeah, it does. Looks kind of like a Barbie. Look at that. Look at that. Look at it's tall, slender. Missing an arm, grant you, but that, you know, um, so. That looks kind of like a fighting arm, like a defiant arm, doesn't it? Yeah, like and obviously the figurines we have will always tend to be stone or pottery, things that, that endure. There isn't much wood left anymore, though I'm, there were many of the things made in wool. And here's a couple of statues of Asherah, another name you often run across in your Old Testament. Ooh. This is 8th to 6th century B.C. Notice the part of herself that she's emphasizing yes. because she is the fertility goddess. And as I was mm. just saying, that is very much an emphasis in these pagan, in these pagan religions. And um, so if you could probably find some Asherah statues out there. If you found some other ones that have been dug up, I bet they looked a little bit similar to this. I'm sure there's others that don't look as similar, but you know, there we go. So, the reason I say in verse 12 that the spirit of prostitution is not directly about sex, though really, honestly, it could be, is because the next phrase is they are unfaithful to their God. The people are unfaithful to their God, and their God is whom? Yahweh. Okay? Remember, I've talked to, I've talked about this before. In Hebrew poetry, um, even in these oracles, which are what these messages are called, the two lines are related. The first line says the idea, 
And the second line basically repeats it, but differently. Um, the, but they, they both capture the same idea. Sometimes the second line will be the opposite, but, but they're capturing the same idea. So a spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. Sort of saying the same thing twice. They sacrifice on the mountaintops because the mountain, the hills, the mountaintops, that's where all the ancient people built, built temples. That's why the Parthenon, Parthenon is up on the Acropolis in Athens. Okay? They sacrifice on the mountaintops and burn offerings on the hills. Under oak trees and poplar trees and terebinth trees where the shade is pleasant. So I guess they take picnics. They take picnics out, sit under the beautiful trees and the breeze, and they, you know, offer some sacrifices and other things, pray to these um, pagan gods and goddesses. It's just really hard for us to get into that world. But it was the world then. It was the world in Jesus' day. Except for the Jews, everybody, everybody's religious imagination was fueled by lots and lots of gods and goddesses, of various powers, various degrees of power. Um, walk into any Roman home and you would find a, what I would call a curio cabinet in the corner with little figurines and, and stuff stacked up there. It's the way it was. Um, I remember talking one time with a lady from St. Andrew who had been to India and came back and she said, ah, it was, it was kind of sad because there were I met so many people who are anxious all the time because in their heads they lived with this plethora of, of, of gods and goddesses and they just always felt like they were making one or more of them unhappy at the moment. And I can see that. So, but here we have picnics, we have wine, we have a lot of things that probably contribute to the willingness of the Israelites to embrace these foreign gods and goddesses. He says, therefore your daughters turn to prostitution and your daughters-in-law to adultery. It is, what's that about? That is about the People being seduced into, into depravity, into, into doing things that they really know aren't helpful for them. And again, you know, I know a lot more about the Roman world and the Greek world of Jesus' day than, than this even more ancient world. But it's, the, the world didn't change a lot back then. And in the Roman world, it was very, very sexualized. And people did worry about their sons and they did worry about their daughters and they didn't go out at night um, because of those, those fears. This is, verse 13 is about um, just not living in the way that God showed them to live, even going back to Mount Sinai. So verse 14. I will not punish your daughters when they turn to prostitution, nor your daughters-in-law when they commit adultery, because the men themselves consort with harlots and sacrifice with shrine prostitutes. 
A people without understanding will come to ruin. That's another proverbial, another little proverb sentence, right? Pro proverbial sentence, like the one above about the, um, the wine. Old wine and new wine take away their understanding. Now, a people without understanding will come to ruin. And notice how in verse 14, it's much harder on the men than on the women. It's, what is it like? I don't know. It's like, um, you know, there wouldn't be prostitutes if there weren't customers. Does that make sense, Sandy? Yes. Am I getting canceled from anywhere now, Patty? I don't think so. Okay. Good. Not that I care. I could probably be canceled a lot of times. I don't know who would cancel you. Oh, there's probably a list. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's, look again, a people without understanding will come to ruin. Now, what do you think? We're talking about understanding the workings of the solar system, understanding the workings of the human body, understand the workings of social... No, it's understanding God, understanding who, that God is God and we're not, understanding that we are God's people, understand that we are called to a way of living. That is what God has in mind. That is what matters the most. That is the starting point for everything else. And if you don't start there, you're going to come to ruin as a people, as a people, because most of this stuff is written to the people rather than to, you know, Tom, Dick, or Sally. It's written to the people. A people without understanding will come to ruin. And so the prophets come and they're bearing God's word to come back to God, come back to God, come back to God. You're driving your car over a cliff just like Thelma and Louise did. And it, that did not end well. We didn't see the end in the movie, but you know it didn't end well. And then there's this plea in verse 15. Though you, Israel, commit adultery, chasing after these foreign gods and goddesses, don't let Judah become guilty. Judah's the southern kingdom. Don't let, don't you seduce Judah into following you, right? Which happens a lot in our lives as individuals. That happens. People, people get pulled into things by their friends. Gosh, how many times did my parents say, well, just because your friends did it didn't mean you had to. Well, yeah, right. You know, so, so as I, as I said, when we started this, uh, book of Hosea, the northern kingdom, by and large, from its formation, is faithless. Faithless. The southern kingdom of Judah is different. They do have some good kings, and they do, they do respond to God. They have some terrible kings, and they they, they run away from God and at times they don't even realize how far they've run. But but um, it's the Israel kingdom, that it, the northern kingdom, that is, it is just the worst. I mean, I don't know how else to put it. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not go up to beth -Avon. Do not answer as surely as the Lord lives. The, the people of Judah... can only get into trouble if they if they go to these northern cities um, 
or swear as surely as the Lord lives. Um, I'm not sure what that was about. I looked for a straightforward answer. Couldn't find it except that, you know, taking the Lord's name in a swear, in an oath, isn't really something that we are, that that they are to do, right? So it's just kind of this little moment of just reminding you of a prohibition about not, not taking the Lord's name in vain, right? It's a disres it's disrespectful of, of, of God to swear by God's name. Even Jesus says the same thing, right? He says, no, no, don't even take an oath. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. You don't need to put all that other stuff on it. Be an honest person. So, okay. So now we have a little switch in metaphors. Now we, I need Bob Kerr because he's my agricultural, I have Mona, she's my agricultural, she's my agricultural consultant also. 16, the Israelites are stubborn, like a stubborn heifer. I guess, I guess, I guess cattle can be like donkeys and get their own minds made up about what they're going to do and not going to do. How then can Yahweh pasture them like lambs in a meadow? You know, it's, I think sometimes it takes real stubbornness to, to stay turned away from God. It's like you sometimes think people, I, th I think you must have to like work at it. Yeah, so Linda says, my footnote says it was a solemn oath, the, the as surely as, as, as the Lord lives, but A heifer is a virgin female. Okay, very good. So, how then can the Lord pasture them like lambs in a meadow? Okay, if the people are going to be stubborn and they're going to shake their fist at God, how can God really be their shepherd? Ephraim is joined to idols. Now, Ephraim is the name of one of the northern tribes. Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone, you people of Judah. Just don't. He's going to entice you to go out to the clubs after midnight. Nothing good happens after midnight. Don't go. Don't do it. Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. Even when their drinks are gone, they continue their prostitution. Their rulers dearly love shameful ways. A whirlwind is going to sweep them away and their sacrifices will bring them shame that they ever did it by ever putting any reliance of theirs on these pagan gods and goddesses. Now, what happens? Actually, like in real life. In real life, the northern kingdom is swept away. The Assyrians arrive like a whirlwind. And those northern tribes are lost. They're scattered. They are never reconstituted as tribes. The northern kingdom of Israel is never reconstituted as a kingdom. They're just swept away. They're like, like a whirlwind or a tornado just picked them up and scattered them across the face of the earth. That is what happens. And... 
the Israelites and the people of Judah looking back on that, and then the people of Judah looking back on their own experience with the Babylonians, they would reflect on, well, why did this happen to them? And their conclusion, their correct conclusion, is that they turned away from God, that they were faithless. It's it, In the Bible, it's never expressed as... Um, uh, geopolitical strategies and international power dynamics and so forth. It's always, did the people stay faithful to God? When they do, they reap really good things. When they don't, the world falls in, in on them. And in 722 BC, the world fell in on the northern kingdom. Okay? So, Anything else anybody has to add to that? I left for a minute and I came back to see a, a heifer as a virgin female. Yeah, we're, we're talking about <laughs> we're talking about heifers. Heifers. I'm sorry, I missed that. Sorry, I was called away on second act business for a second. Mm. At second act ministry, that is going well, isn't it? Yes. And Officer Chris Bianes is coming again on Wednesday, Wednesday. afternoon, and Do there's room. There is room. There is room. So even if you have a register, you could just come. Yes. At 2 o'clock on Wednesday, Wednesday in Pirro Hall. Pirro Hall. Coffee, right? desserts, it'll be fun. Yep. He'll make it fun. He'll make it fun. He's a very high-energy guy, isn't he, Patty? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my. He is 60, <laughs> and he looks like he's about 45, yeah. and he's got the stamina, I think, of yeah, someone 30. So, yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. He's a high-energy guy. Okay, so let's roll into Chapter 5. Now, what do we find in Chapter 5? Kind of two sections. The first section is going to be God's condemnation of the priests, and then God's really turns to the people, condemnation of the people. The priests, the leaders, the kings, they are supposed to know better. They are supposed to lead the people toward God, not away from God. But they don't. What happens? They become corrupt. Doing evil deeds. Committing apostasy. Apostasy is a fancy word for turning away from God. So here's here's Jose. I can picture the man thundering into thundering into what? Thundering into the temple in Jerusalem. To the standing with all there with all the priests, busy, 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 and he says to them, Hear this, you priests. Pay attention, you Israelites. Listen, royal house. That's the kings. The kings and the priests. Okay? This judgment is against you. You have been a snare, a trap at Mizpah, a net, net sprout out, spread out on Tabor. These are northern kingdom places, meaning they've been, a, they've been pulling the people of the northern kingdom into these traps and snares like you would, in which you would capture animals or, or fish or whatever. The rebels are knee-deep in slaughter, and I'm going to discipline all of them. I know all about Ephraim. Israel is not hidden from me. Ephraim, you have now turned to prostitution. Israel is corrupt. 
the same theme from chapter 4. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. Wow. They show no sign in their actions of anything approaching contrition and repentance. If you have been running away from God and you want to return to God, you need to embrace contrition, being sorry, repentance, turning around and abandoning your old way and abandoning new way like the prodigal son. He doesn't just wake up one day and say, oh gosh, well I guess I'm going to go home. My dad will have to take me back. He, he regrets what he has done. And you know that he goes home fearfully. He's ready to embrace the truth about what he did and he's ready to embrace a new life. And it fills his father's heart with joy. But you can't skip some of those early steps. That's why when in my Sunday class we're talking about salvation and we're talking about words like contrition and repentance. Because they're part of the they're part of the process. They're part of the process. Um, salvation is not simply getting a passport stamp, boom, and then you can just go back to being the person you were before. That's not it. How could that be it? So he says their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. A spirit of prostitution is in their heart. They do not acknowledge Yahweh. So why why is God going to acknowledge them? Right? Yep. Yeah, exactly. They don't acknowledge God. Why is God going to acknowledge them? Israel's arrogance. Their arrogance testifies against them. The Israelites, even Ephraim, that's to make it more specific, that's one of the tribes, stumbled in their sin. Judah, also stumbles with them. Judah doesn't really escape this. You know, their whirlwind will arrive about 140 years, 130 years after the Assyrians sweep away the northern kingdom, but the southern kingdoms can be swept away by the Babylonians. And the Jews are going to be sent off into exile. And the city is going to be knocked down. And the temple is going to be destroyed. And the Ark of the Covenant is going to be taken away. And presumably melted down. When they go with their flocks and their herds to seek the Lord, they're not going to find him. He has withdrawn himself from them because they don't genuinely seek him. They don't want to find him. God can see their hearts, right? Look up, look up above. Their arrogance testifies against them. God, you know, it's so funny that I, you know, I run into people from time to time who will say something to me like, well, you know, I can't pray that. I can't let God know. And, you know, I say in my good pastoral voice, but God does know. God does know. God 
God knows us in our hearts. God knows us better than we know ourselves. And he certainly knows the Israelites and the people of Judah better than they know themselves. So, verse 7, they are unfaithful to Yahweh. And now to go back to the metaphor, not really a metaphor, but the story of Hosea and Gomer, they give birth to illegitimate children. Because you remember, Gomer was supposed to um, keep having babies by her customers. Her tricks, I guess that's the right word, huh? Mm -hmm. When they celebrate their new moon feasts, these are pagan feasts, he will devour their fields. Sound the trumpet in Gibeah, the horn in Ramah. Raise the battle cry in Beth Avon. Lead on, Benjamin. Ephraim will be laid waste on the day of reckoning. Among the tribes of Israel, I proclaim what is certain. Judah's leaders are like those who move boundary stones. This is... <laughs> I did read what that was about. It's about... You know, boundary stones would be a way of marking out like your 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 tribal territory or your sub-tribal territory or your village territory or whatever it might be. And so the prince or the tribal chieftain or however you want to think about them would just go out and they'd scoot them. <laughs> they'd scoot them closer, you know, to their neighbor's stuff so that their land is expanded. Well, that's that's cheating. Judah's leaders are like those who move boundary stones. I will pour out my wrath on them like a flood of water. Ephraim is oppressed, trampled in judgment, intent on pursuing idols. I, God, this is God speaking. I am like a moth to Ephraim, like rot to the people of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his sores. Okay, now this is talking about the affliction that the nation is experiencing, not a physical affliction, it's metaphorical. Then Ephraim turned to Assyria and sent to the great king for help. So let me ask you, if you're the leader of the northern kingdom or you're the leader of the southern kingdom, to whom do you turn for help? The king of Assyria? No. You turn to Yahweh. You turn to Yahweh. They sent to the great king for help, but he's not able to cure you. He's not able to heal your sores. Ah, for I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a great lion to Judah. I will tear them to pieces and go away. I will carry them off with no one to rescue them. Then I will return to my lair until they have borne their guilt and seek my face. Seek my face. When Moses encounters God at Mount Sinai, this is after the Exodus, God, Moses tells God that he wants to see God's face. He wants that level of intimacy. It's, it, it, God does not actually have a face. It's a metaphor for a level of intimacy, okay? So, and, and, and God says, well, you can't. You can't and live because, see, God is so holy and Moses is not. It's like, uh, one of the best metaphors is it's like flying too close to the sun. 
it's just a matter of course that if I get to, if I were to get too close to the sun, I would get burned up like a crisp. So Moses cannot see the face of God. And so God tells Moses, well, wait here, hide out in this little cleft of rock over here. I will pass by and you can see me from behind. And the whole thing is about, you know, the limitation that even Moses has with respect to seeing God's face. And then there's this great turnabout in Revelation when the promise in Revelation 22 is to God's people, they will see the face of God because it speaks to the intimacy that we will enjoy with God after Jesus returns and there is the new heavens and the new earth. And so to say they will seek my face is to say they will genuinely seek to be my people again. They will seek to be with me. They will seek this intimacy um, with me. Remember in in chapter 2 when God said, oh, when you, you, you know that God is just about to stamp them out and God says, nope, I'm going to allure them. I'm going to lure them allure them and I'm going to take them out to the wilderness and we're just going to start over. Like, like young lovers, we're just going to start over. We're just going to start over. And so God says in verse 15, I'm just, I'm just going to go back home. That's what a lair, a lair is a home. I will, I'm just going to go back home until they've suffered the consequences of their guilt. You know, they're the Sin has consequences, and they're going to suffer it until they have borne their guilt and seek my face, God says, in their misery. And they will earnestly seek me. I think probably more people come to God out of misery than out of good times. What do you think, honey? I totally agree. Yeah. It's like, maybe it's the last place they turn, you know? No, my mother was dreadfully wrong about this. When I was growing up, she used to look at some people or hear their stories. She well, that's just being a foxhole Christian. They've only come to God because of how much trouble they're in. And when I started to understand this, I said, well, I've thought to myself, well, no, mother, actually. That is when the defenses are down and people will actually come to God, will actually take the hand that is offered to them, will let God rescue them. That That's when that happens. So, in their misery, they will earnestly seek me. Okay? So I know that when we do these books like this, doesn't it get kind of wearing the... the sort of verse after verse of all the different ways that Judah and Israel, the kingdoms have kingdoms of Judah and Israel have run away from God. I find them so. Anyway, maybe I'm not the maybe I'm the only one. But they get they get long and I'm often waiting waiting for the good stuff, you know? waiting for the hope. And the great thing about the prof prophetic books is that that's always what happens. You have the darkness 
and you think it's all about to be over, and then you have the message of hope brought. And I think that's that's so important for Christians to remember. We we talk a lot about the good news, right? The good news of Jesus Christ. We just had Ash Wednesday. What do we say on Ash Wednesday? Well, could be ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Or sometimes we say, repent to believe in the good news. Well, the only thing that makes good news good is if it follows bad news, right? So imagine that somebody came out with a cure for all cancers. Nobody would doubt that that was really good news, right? Yes, Patty? of course. What if somebody came out for uh, with a cure for a disease that nobody gets? Mm. You wouldn't care. Why would you care? Right. Why would you care? Exactly. Nobody, nobody would care because there's no. I mean, you have. And the the sad part is, we live in a time when a lot of people don't want to acknowledge the bad news. They don't want to acknowledge sin. They don't want to talk about the darkness. And without that, none of this makes any sense. It just doesn't make it. That doesn't make any sense. What, what What's the good news if there isn't? If there hasn't been bad news, what? Why so much emphasis on the light unless there is the darkness? So culturally, a lot of people don't want to hear it. They just don't want to hear about the darkness. And I think that's one of the reasons that the gospel has trouble landing with people because they basically don't think there's anything that wrong with them. Going back to that famous book I've talked about many times in the 70s, I'm okay, you're okay. If you think you're basically okay with a few little adjustments and tweaks, what do you care about Jesus for? It's only if you appreciate that there is something wrong in humanity that, and in me that humanity and I cannot fix, only then are you ready to hear the power of God. Um, that is the gospel. I think what you're saying is very true in that a lot of folks, maybe people who are not brought up Christian, um, and we, you and I both know people in our family and um, extended family who feel this way because they're really pretty good people. They're pretty good. That We've heard the word used in our family, moral heathen. Yeah. That they're good, they're good people, but they just don't somehow relate the whole original sin as being part of their makeup. Right. Like that, that has nothing to do with Because they don't really understand themselves well enough. Yes, that is that's yes. that's the truth of it. Yes, you know, and the there a famous oracle was the oracle of Delphi, thousands of years ago, and up in Delphi in Greece, the the writing over the entrance into the temple was "Know thyself." Okay, mm -hmm. you have to know yourself, and a lot of people they just don't. I don't think I did for much of my life. I would have said, "Yeah, I'm a moral heathen." You know, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty, pretty without understanding. Well, why is this world so screwed up? <laughs> is it really just everybody else, and I'm not part of it in any way? Well, that's just silly. So, look at chapter six.
I love this. <sighs> Famous line. Hosea 6, verse 1. If you're, a, if you're a circler of things in your Bible, circle this particular piece right here. Come, let us return to Yahweh. Because if you come returning to Yahweh with a contrite heart, in genuine repentance, Yahweh's, Yahweh's waiting. Yahweh's there. Come, let us return to Yahweh. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Interesting, isn't it, Patty? Why is that interesting? Because I right away think of Jesus of course dying we do. And on the third day. I would defy any Christian to read the second verse of Hosea 6 and not think of Jesus and the resurrection. You know, I don't think resurrection is in view or would have been what came to the mind of people 2,740 years ago that Hosea was speaking to, but that doesn't mean it's not a signpost to Jesus and his resurrection because Jesus' resurrection is our resurrection, right? Yes. As Jesus was raised, so shall we all be raised. That resurrection of the dead is an integral part of the new heavens and the new earth. It is the ground of our hope. And probably... There's a passage in Luke where, where Jesus talks about, you know, being re um, revived uh, after two days and restored on the third. And he probably has in mind this passage from Hosea. When he says, you know, after two days he will revive us, I think that's kind of, I don't know, you know, kind of help building us back up. But on the third day being restored, and I think restored what? Restored that we may live in his presence. And I feel that that is, you know, at that point we have bridged the chasm between us and God. That's and what I think, that's what I think the signpost is all about, right? Yes. It's about... For, from an Israelite perspective, the people to whom this was written, it's about the community of God's people being restored into their proper relationship with God. And that is carried down to the individual when we talk when we think about our being restored to a right relationship with God, which is a beautiful way to speak of salvation, which I'm on my mind because we're talking about it so much on Sunday mornings now. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will restore us that we may live in his presence. I once wrote a background study and I talked about presence. And I, I talked about how delicious presence is. And I put it in the context of my marriage that Patty, pr 
present in the room with me is simply a good thing. We don't have to be talking, having deep conversations or anything, just her presence, right? God had told his people at Mount Sinai that he would that he would be with them. And the whole tabernacle business and then the temple business is about God dwelling with them in a way that God dwell, wasn't dwelling with any other people. That he would be present with them in a way that he wasn't present with any other people on the globe. And the tragedy is they threw it away. They threw it away because of their faithlessness. That's what we've been reading about for the last two chapters. Their faithlessness. So to have this, this promise brought by from God through Hosea that they would again live in his presence is had to be remarkable and had to be comforting. Um, and I will add, sadly, sadly, this is 700 and, let's call it 730, 740 B.C. They are not a people who will stay faithful. They are not a people who would stay faithful. So verse 3, Hosea says, Let us acknowledge Yahweh. Let us press on to acknowledge him, that he is our God, that we are his people. That's the first step toward understanding. If I, weren't, if I didn't acknowledge Patty, how could I come to understand Patty or anybody else? If I walked around the church every Sunday, by the, I don't know you, I don't know you, I don't know you, how could I ever come to know anybody? If I didn't even acknowledge him, right? Let us acknowledge Yahweh. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. Because God is steadfast. God is reliable. God is faithful. God not only makes promises, God keeps those promises. The problem is never with God. The problem is with the people. The problem is with us. When, when we feel like God's drifted away from us. It isn't God has gone anywhere. We've gone somewhere. You may experience it as if God went somewhere, but that's not right. <laughs> Where would God go? It's, it's, it's we who turn our hearts away from God. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. Come, let us return to the Lord. He will come to us. Look at, look at the um, end of chapter 5, okay? Because the chapter divisions are artificial, right? So in verse 15 of Hosea 5, then I, God says, I will return to my lair, to my home, until they have borne their guilt and seek my face. In their misery, they will earnestly seek me. And then, for the people, come. Let us return to Yahweh. 
Let us return to Yahweh, that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord, and he will appear. He'll come to us like the winter rains and like the spring rains that water the earth. Have you ever been, ex you know, a lot of times in scripture, I, I related to my parenting because it's a very powerful metaphor in scripture between God and his people. And, you know, we, we've talked a lot in this because of Jose and Gomer about the metaphor of marriage, but the metaphor of parenthood is powerful. And I know there are times in my life when as a parent, I was just so exasperated and just just so, what do I do? What do I do? I don't know. I, I don't. What do I do? So here in verse 4, I relate to this completely. God says, what can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. You really don't want your spouse or a person you love or who claims to love you to tell you that their love is so strong for you it's like the morning mist because the morning mist goes away like the early dew that disappears. It's fleeting, right? What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you? Your love is so fleeting. But I like the poetry. I like the metaphors that the writer, that Hosea uses here. That's what's beautiful about, about the Bible, and it's filled with it, because we're talking about God. The only way we can talk about God is via analogy, and a principal form of analogy is metaphor. We have no other way to talk about God, unless we could move and talk about Jesus, then we don't have to do that as much, because he walked the planet with us. But otherwise, it's gonna be by analogy by metaphor. Your love is like the morning mist. It's like the early dew that disappears. So it's like God saying, okay, I know you're coming back to me now. I know you're coming back to me. It's wonderful, but you know, you'll be gone by noon. <laughs> you'll be gone by noon. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. Now, do the prophets actually cut anybody in pieces? No. Moses does, but not guys like Hosea and Obadiah and those people. I think it's referring to, to the words that they bring. I killed you with the words of my mouth. Words have power. I talked about this in my sermon on Sunday. Words enact things. When the umpire calls strike in baseball, when the minister says, I now pronounce you husband and wife, it, something is created. Paul writes that the power the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Paul very much believes that the words have power and they must be spoken. This is Romans 10. They must be spoken. And they can't be spoken unless there's somebody who's willing to speak them. They must be spoken. I killed you with the words of my mouth. Then my judgments go forth like the sun. And what can escape the sun? Nothing. 
And then this next beautiful part, you know, it, it, Micah echoes it, Isaiah echoes it, mm -hmm. I desire mercy. Mercy are acts of compassion. I desire mercy. When you feed somebody who's hungry, you close somebody who's cold, when you help somebody who simply needs help, when you give somebody a kind word who actually needs a kind word at that moment or an ear to listen to, those are acts of mercy. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. All that sacrificial system of the Israelites, which was the center of their religion, it wasn't really the point. That's why when I talk about the law, I talk about the, the priestly system and the sacrifices is a, like a splint. Splints have their usefulness for a time, but they're not the point. The point is healing, not getting by. And the sacrifices are all about just getting by. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. An acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. It's as if God says, don't ignore me. Don't ignore me. Nobody wants to be ignored. And the closer you are to the person who's ignoring you, the worse it is. Like if you have a good friend and you're not on speaking terms and you're you're ignoring each other because of of something that happened or something somebody said, that's that's a burden. That's bad. People don't want to be ignored. They want to be acknowledged. God wants to be acknowledged. Why does God care? Why does God why does God care whether or not we acknowledge the creator of the cosmos who made all this stuff. Why does God care? Because he desires this personal relationship with us. You got it. He, he made the world in order to make the church. He made the world in order to have this people who would love God and whom he could love. That's who God is. That matters more than all the beautiful hills and valleys and mountaintops and dynamic sunrises and sunsets that are out there. It's about the people. A people whom God could love and who would love God. A people created only a little lower than the angels, the writer of Hebrews says, a people whom God values so highly that God would take their humanity into God's self in the incarnation. So of course God wants to be acknowledged by them. You can't, you can't be loved if you're not even acknowledged. And he does it. He wants to be acknowledged rather than all the burnt offerings. As at Adam, they have broken the covenant. Now, several ways to translate that. I got curious. For some translators, it's like Adam, like of Adam and Eve. For others, it's a place. So I pulled down my Jewish study Bible and looked in that Hebrew, it's called the Tanakh, the Tanakh translation. And right there, what it, what it says, the way they translate it is, 
as to every last man, because Adam, of course, is simply the word for man. That's all it is. That's all Adam is, the word for man. So it would be, they translate it as to every last man, they've broken the covenant. They were unfaithful to me there. If I, if in that translation, the whole thing makes complete sense to me. The other ones don't make so much sense to me. Mine says uh, something as human beings, they have broken the covenant. Yes, because that would tie you into like, like Adam representing all the human Mankind, beings, yes. right? That gets you. That gets you close too. Gilead is a city of evildoers, stained with footprints of blood. As marauders lie in ambush for a victim, so do bands of priests. Wow! <laughs> oh man! Imagine you're a priest in Israel, and this is what God's prophet says: As marauders lie in ambush for a victim, that's who you are. As do bands of priests. They murder on the road to Shechem, carrying out their wicked schemes. Does it? Does he mean actual murder? No, but they're destroying the people because they're leading the people away from God. And if you are, if you are, if you don't acknowledge God and seek understanding, you will come to ruin. So in that sense, yes, they are murdered. You don't even have to go as far as the priests actually physically killing people. They are killing them because they are leading them away from God. I have seen a horrible thing in Israel, Hosea says. There is Ephraim is given to prostitution and Israel is defiled. Because Hosea is a prophet to the northern kingdom, which is named Israel. That northern kingdom takes that name Israel. And that's where he works. That's his office, as it were. I have seen a horrible thing in Israel. Ephraim is given to prostitution and Israel is defiled. So, when we come... Um, Back next week, I will link up the end of chapter 6 um, with chapter 7, and we will go on from there. But I think that's... Um, because, it's, it's again, it's a weird chapter break, and I don't want to start the next, the next big, big section. Maybe we'll do the first half of 11, because it really fits with what went before. Yeah. Also for you, Judah, <laughs> a harvest is appointed. I mean, don't you think you're escaping all of this? <laughs> you're faithless too. Your time's coming. Your harvest is coming too. You're gonna you're you're gonna reap the consequences of your own sin, like the famous verse in Ezekiel says, "I will turn their sins back on their heads." Sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. So. Anyway, anything else there, Patty? Um, you know, I, I was thinking of what we were talking about before, right? Um, for I will be like the lion, the great lion of Judah. Yes. You know, I, and then the next few lines we're talking about that after he tears them apart, he's going to rescue them. And that two days and three days, that whole thing comes up. It brought me to Revelation 5 again. 
talking about that, you know, no one can save. No one can open the scrolls, which in my case, I'm, I'm saying no one can save these people. But then when he turns to see the Lion of Judah, it's the slain lamb, which is Jesus, which then brings us to on the third day, he will restore us. I don't know. My brain was working that because way. Because though their sins will be turned back on their heads and they will reap the terrible consequences of the choices they have made. In the end, God will take them out into the wilderness and speak tenderly to them. Yeah. And they will start over, right? Yes. As we will start over with God. That's like young lovers. And it's just, you know, yeah. So you always that's why you always have to keep the large picture. the large picture in mind. You have to keep the large view in yes. mind. Because that's really the ground of Christian hope. The ground of Christian hope is not going to be what's going to happen next year or the year after or any promise that we will never die or anything like that. It is it is the knowledge that we will that nothing can separate us from God. God won't allow it. God won't allow it. I mean, right after he brings this good news that he's going to save them, like you said, immediately they go back into the same mess. Like it, it didn't take. It was like God gave it to them and it didn't quite take. And when you read some of their books, it's almost like the, by the time you get to this point in their story, it's like they're all, they're really too late. It is like Thelma and Louise, and the car has left the cliff. It's almost that sense sometimes in the Old Testament. It's just, mm -hmm. you know, so you kind of know that it's not going to have, not going to have a good ending for the Northern Kingdom or the Southern Kingdom. Thankfully. God is relentless. Yes, in his love for us. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. All righty. So, good class. Yeah. Hi, everybody, and bye, everybody. <laughs> um, class tomorrow? Class tomorrow, 1 Samuel. Samuel. Samuel, take, Samuel takes charge, and the people start to demanding a king. Much like, have you ever seen the movie Beauty and the Beast? Much like Gaston. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll do that tomorrow. All righty. And again, if you're not with us tomorrow, please think about coming to uh, hear Officer Chris be honest on um, Wednesday, 2 o'clock. It would be wonderful if you um, signed up. There is no charge for this. It's completely free. It's an hour. And if those of you enjoyed his... Um, class that he held a few weeks ago, um, actually January 15th, on fraud. This one is on personal protection of your property. And people who have seen this have told me that the, the things that he introduces, little changes, little things you can do to your home to make yourself so much safer and not be a target for somebody to rob you or burglarize. Burglarize? Burglarize, yep, you got it, baby. You. Um, you know, sadly, they might go somewhere else, but it will hopefully protect you from them breaking into your home. So anyway, I do hope that people are there. We already have a full room, but there's there's plenty of room down in Pirro Hall. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this absolutely beautiful Monday. We thank you for the sunshine, God, and and just how wonderful sunshine makes all of us feel. We thank you, Lord, for being with us in your presence, being felt today in this 
Bible study. We pray, Lord, that you would watch over each of us. We pray, God, for your healing. I'm praying, and Scott's praying with me, and the rest of us, we're praying for Jan Brooks for the healing of her hip after her surgery. And Lord, we just pray for those out there that are with us today that we do not know what they might be needing healing from God, That, but your healing hand would be around them too. Lord, hold us close till we come back together next Monday. We love you, Lord. We're grateful, Lord. We thank you, God, for being so relentless with your love for us. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Adios, everybody. Bye, guys. Bye-bye.